This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome to Talking TV, I'm Jake Cantor. On the show this week, the small matter of the biggest structural change to the BBC in its 92-year history. Hear more on the corporation's plans to tear up commissioning quotas. Also on the agenda, we'll have an interview with the producer behind Channel 4's innovative university series, The Secret Life of Students. Plus, we preview BBC One's potentially controversial experiment, Nick and Margaret, Too Many Immigrants. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. Joining me in the studio this week is broadcast columnist Stephen D. Wright. How are you? I'm fine. You've been away? Been away. I've been in uh, France avoiding the World Cup. Avoiding the, the dearth of television. Avoiding the, yes, exactly, the worst <laughs> TV time of all time. Of all times. About a month ago we did our last one, wasn't it? And it was it was the same story then. So Yeah, I mean, it's been like sport, 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 sport <laughs> and repeats. It's nearly finished. Yeah, nearly, nearly finished. Also this episode we welcome back broadcast online editor Alex Farber. Hello, Jake. Uh, you've been watching the World Cup, haven't you? I've been watching bits of the World Cup, bits of the cycling, bits of tennis, nothing too You're much. just a sport nut. Bits of cricket. What do you want me to say? <laughs> well, the Commonwealth Games are coming back soon. Yeah, well, we, we're all braced for that. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to the main business of the day, shall we? Which, of course, can only be one story. Uh, yes, the BBC this week revealed plans to abolish all of its commissioning quotas with a view to allowing in-house producers to pitch to other broadcasters. The proposals have been branded the biggest opening up of the BBC in its 92-year history and is the corporation's response to a wave of indie sector consolidation this year. Director of Television Danny Cohen believes deals such as all three media's sale to Discovery and Liberty Global has rendered current guarantees bust. He argued that the system is beginning to limit choice for commissioners and ultimately audiences. As for the future of BBC Productions, well, the corporation is seriously considering hiving the production arm off into a BBC Worldwide-style company, a company that the BBC hopes will be able to compete with the indie sector both in the UK and abroad. Uh, Stephen, this is this is pretty seismic stuff, isn't it? Mm, very exciting. I, I read the story and was like, you genuinely kind of wow, gobsmacked, and all the rest of that it. That seems to be the reaction yeah. we've had. I mean, we're recording literally the morning that uh, mm. that this has been announced. And yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, I read it last night and I was like, back. wow, the world's changed. It felt like it was definitely a big thing. Very exciting. I mean, obviously, there's lots of questions in my head, but the initial news, the idea that the BBC is opening up. Is, is brilliant. It's fantastic. And I think everybody will be, you know, smiling today in Soho and other places <laughs> where independent producers, you know, live. So but, you you do think it's exciting, not, oh, I do. not worrying? No, no. I mean, it, we live in a competitive world, so it doesn't change that. You still have to go in and fight to the death to get a commission. But the BBC has been a sort of, the BBC in-house, I should say, has been an unfair uh, competitor for a long time because it's got these kind of protected quotas. They get meetings with controllers where they know they're going to get something so they don't try as hard, blah, blah, blah. And Danny Cohen's right to say that they, they need to have the most choice, the best ideas, etc., etc. But opening it up to everybody is is the only thing to do. It, it feels like the right thing to do, and it, I'm so glad they've done it. Alex, you're a free market man. This is, this is good for the indie sector, is it? Absolutely, I think so. A system whereby they're able to compete for the entirety of the BBC's commissioning budget can only be a good thing, in my opinion, and you know could have the knock-on effect of making BBC in-house production a more efficient, effective division of its own. Do you agree with Danny that the current system of quotas is is not serving audiences and the industry at the moment? A difficult argument. I mean, to me, that's a political argument from the BBC. The reality is... It's but he, not... I mean, he's saying that 
this is affecting the decisions that commissioners make. Yeah, I don't know about that so much. What I, you know, I come from an independent perspective. So basically, my my view is that this is exactly right because the Indies are stopped or prevented from competing on the the so-called level playing field, which has been uphill for years. You know what I mean? That's all I really care about. To me, Alex is right. It could absolutely transform in-house productions. Where, if I remember, if I remember saying this the last time on the podcast, is full of dead wood. There's a lot of dead wood in the BBC. Making it a bit more uh, lean and efficient, and all the rest of it, you know, hiving it off to a new company is a, is all a good thing. It becomes a super indie itself. Then, yeah. as long as the, this level playing field really is level, then it could be a brilliant thing for everybody. You know, BBC in house has been a bit of a kind of wasteland of you know some good people and a lot of people who kind of dodder about. But to me, this is really is opening it up and making it uh, as realistic and, and uh, efficient as possible. Jake, what do you think the mood will be like at BBC in-house division today? It's difficult to say because it's quite early doors at the moment. I mean, I've spoken very briefly to Mark Freeland, who is the boss of uh, fiction. And uh, Mark said to me, basically, BBC in-house will no longer be the Ferrari in the farmyard. <laughs> Which is quite a good analogy, I, I think. And Ferrari with no wheels on, <laughs> on bricks, you mean? But no, no, exactly. That's yeah. the thing. He's, he's, you know, if he can, if they can start pitching to ITV, Channel Four, whoever, you know, good for them. The producers that have worked in the house have always had an easier ride when it comes to budgets. They've always had an easier ride when it comes to re-edits and overspends and things like that. That's the great sort of scandal of BBC in house is that they junk shows all the time. That you know, if it's expensive, they just keep making them. You can't do that in the indie sector. So if that kind of uh, reality, those rules uh, are applied to in-house, then in-house will become better. That way, the programmes will become better. They will become less expensive or whatever, but they'll become better. That's a good thing. And more business for everybody. Yeah. So are you suggesting it's going to be a leaner organisation? Does that mean there's the potential of job cuts as a result of this move? Uh, again, Danny, I spoke to Danny Cohen this week, and he, uh, the, what's clear is his message on the in-house future is not one of cost-cutting. It's about opening up the BBC. Now, presumably, shaping in-house for a commercial future will probably involve a significant restructure. Someone was telling me this morning that uh, it will probably kill some departments dead. Uh, For example, uh, they were saying entertainment, uh, perhaps returning drama. uh, Some of these... Sorry, yeah. I don't know about that. I I mean, this was from an in-house producer this morning. He he said that um, some of the BBC in-house departments are set up to serve certain slots. Mm. They are not there as an organisation to to maximise revenue. I would have thought, well, I mean, this is the thing. If if the people that, you know, that run entertainment, they know how to make shows, they can be pitching to anybody. I mean, instead of pitching only to BBC One for, say, a seven o'clock show on a Saturday night, they can pitch to ITV, they can pitch to Sky, they can pitch to... They can do that. I mean, instead of thinking about, say, job cuts, what you should be thinking about is less wastage. That's the big message from an in-house perspective, that those people will be able to earn. I mean, they, they sit on good ideas. They sit on good ideas they can't do anything with, and they go off like pints of milk that have been left out. You know, if they can start pitching them to everybody, they will become more hardworking and more value for money, etc., etc. Mm. Uh, and those good ideas that, you know, can't get out because the BBC's already, you know, said no to that one. They, suddenly we can see it on ITV. We can, you know, it might improve the quality of TV generally and not just BBC. Also, there's no, I don't think there's any bad thing with the BBC becoming a slightly more porous, outward-facing organisation. And perhaps if it starts to do more business with third parties, 
that might, in some respect, culturally change the makeup and the, the setup of the of of the corporation. I mean, it's going to have a turnover. Well, it currently has a turnover of about four hundred million pounds, which, if it was truly independent, would make it the biggest UK indie uh, by some sizable margin. I mean, do you not think that uh, it will be treading on commercial toes? A publicly funded organisation operating in the private sector. I suppose there is that risk. I mean, there'll be some safeguards put in place to ensure that it's not being, what, profiteering from public subsidy. I, I, that, that, that's the ambition anyway. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was all off, I was all for this five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm like, oh no. Oh no. Profiteering, it's like, that's it. No, listen, we've got to be a bit more optimistic. This is a huge seismic change the BBC have finally embraced. You know, I don't want to be a naysayer too quickly. You know, mm. this is potentially a really good thing. Very exciting a massive sort of jolt of energy that could make the BBC much more uh, exciting and creative, really, because it, you know, it, it it's ponderous at the moment. It's, you know, there's bits of it that are literally, you know, ignored. There's, there's producers sat in cupboards behind. Well, actually, there's no cupboards left in the BBC. They're all, you know, hot desking and everything. But the old school BBC, you know, the TV centre, you'd open doors and the big producers hadn't kind of seen daylight for years. That that that. You know, has to go away. It's got to end. <laughs> it's got to. You know, it's got to be about um, TV. Is is this is the thing about TV now? It's not just London. It's not just the UK channels. It's global. It's formats. It's this. It's that. And it's moving all the time. And the BBC has to do it with it. Now, if the other thing that we're not talking about is opening up those quotas to the Indies, means loads more business. That's the big plus point from my perspective that that kind of wipes out any negatives. You know, and obviously it's going to take a bit of time to sort of settle down within the BBC culture. But to me, that's the big message. That's why I'm saying Soho will be excited today because indies will suddenly have more business to, to pitch for. Yeah. More business, more work, more money. Yeah, you know. There, I mean, there is a big caveat to all of this and that uh, this announcement is the BBC starting the discussion on this issue yeah. rather than <laughs> rather than actually saying this is okay. what's going to happen. I've just, <laughs> just popped my cork uh, prematurely. I mean, the, I mean <laughs> not for the first time. Yes. Well, I mean, this is what they're minded to do. Uh, they will, I'm sure, make formal representations to the government next year during charter renewal negotiations. If there's a Tory government in place, they're all about the free market. Mm. Um, I, listen, I don't be, think it would be difficult to see them. I can't see any, any with this. I can't see any politician disagreeing with this because this is. A forward-thinking move. It makes the BBC uh, more open, more honest, more truthful. All those things. Um, it gets away a little bit of that sort of uh, resentment from the indie community, and potentially brings in loads more money to a business that that needs it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, to me, it's yeah, all you're good. A strong really advocate. Is. I mean, one of the one of the things that we haven't really talked about on this show, Alex, is the fact that. This is a response to indie sector consolidation, according to Danny Cohen. Um, one of those deals, which we are expecting reasonably soon, is uh, Sky taking a major stake in Love Productions. That's also pretty significant, isn't it, Alex? What, what can you tell us about Sky's plans in this area? Well, I think it's Sky's first major deal in the space. It's a, a signal of intent um, in terms of it wanting to get more into the content game, um, you know, Sky's always been about diversifying its business as widely as possible. And I think having a stake in a successful, um, growing independent business, which makes content for a range of broadcasters, um, owning some additional IP, which it can then channel through Sky Vision, you know, is no bad thing. and makes a lot of sense for, uh, for uh, what is effectively a, a platform and technology company. See, I think it is a bad thing. Sky owning yeah, a, a production what's the, company. You know, what the F, to use that word, 
is Sky thinking of? They're already hugely successful. What do they need to start sticking their oar into indies that are already kind of working well, other than distorting the kind of commissioning market again? So if they buy Love or get a stake in Love, are Love going to have more slots on Sky? You know what I mean? It's like, so what happens if you're not in Love Productions? Suddenly you're, you know, you're in it again. It's like if the BBC are equaling the playing field, why does Sky have to suddenly start digging it up at the other end? It's a weird thing for because Channel Four are thinking of or started doing will. this as they well. Will, so they will start. They're all starting to do it because, and the BBC are now changing the rules. So it's like just let the indies do their business and stay out of. But our presumably, own. this is the, the indies are saying, yeah, we're, we're quite well. The happy indies to always need money, so it's you know, it's but if you're not in the indie that's being sub- subsidised, you're back to the uh, the the unfair window of competition. Shall we move on from these uh, these dense issues, shall we, and talk about something a bit lighter, uh, which is our Commission of the Fortnight and the news this week that BBC Two is lining up a Game of Thrones-style drama based on Bernard Cornwell's best-selling novels, The Saxon Stories. Uh, produced by Carnival Films, the eight-part series is billed as a show full of heroic deeds and epic battles that embraces politics, religion, warfare, courage, love, loyalty, and our universal search for identity. Does this sort of thing float your boat, Stephen? Well, it sounds very similar your to your Viking show. boat, I should say. My Viking boat has seen has been that ship has sailed a long time ago. <laughs> no, I mean this sounds very similar to Game of Thrones, you know. And my first thought was how cynical, and my second thought was I hope it's nothing like the White Queen, which I remember was which the was last a bit BBC, of a disaster uh, version of Game of Thrones. If we keep you know having that sort of as our, our benchmark. But no, I mean, my only worry is is that the thing that makes Game of Thrones so good is the fact that it is unrelentingly honest. It doesn't do that kind of soft-soaping. It doesn't hide the, the murder and the sex and the villainy and the intrigue. So if it, if it can be as good as that, not necessarily with the fantastical element, then I'm all for it because I love these kind of programmes. But it has to be a good drama. The White Queen is the warning that I would be whispering <laughs> to anyone who's kind of planning to... Uh, to get excited about this one. Janice Hadlow was a, is a well-known admirer of Game of Thrones, and although she's no longer at BBC Two, presumably this was across her desk when she was there, given that it's you know it feels like quite a well-rounded, massive drama project. Mm. I mean, Kim a... Schillinglaw's the one who signed it off. This yeah. is a good signal of intent for her ambition, yeah. isn't I mean, it? there is another Viking series that's already out there on the in the digital world that's just as bloodthirsty and as exciting as, as Game of Thrones. So how many Viking dramas can we stand? I don't know. It's... Are you a Game of Thrones fan? No, Alex. but I know, I know you are, Jake. Yeah, I love it. He watched with your 13-sided dice. <laughs> but that's your lot for this bumper BBC News section. My thanks to Stephen and Alex. Up next, many of us remember our stagger into adulthood during the first weeks of university. Now imagine having them documented for an entire nation to watch. It is, of course, familiar territory for television, but Raw TV has applied a unique twist to the subject for its Channel 4 series, The Secret Life of Students. The Indy has developed a digital rig, allowing a team of researchers to sift through 200,000 texts, phone calls, social media updates and internet searches from 12 students over three months. The mobile activity pops up in Sherlock-style 3D graphics on screen, providing an often disarmingly intimate perspective on how the freshers feel about their new lives and lusts. Before bringing in series producer Joanne Timoney, here's a taste of the first episode. Since arriving at uni, Josie's been in constant contact with her mates from home. Hi, Donya. <laughs> Just in my room in Leicester. 
Let's have a little look. So I've got my posters on the wall. It makes it a lot easier when you're not having a great time to be able to go to your friends and like be able to say, guys, uh, please help me. <laughs> it's just like therapy because you're not holding your problems inside you, you're talking them out. Uh, Joanne, welcome to Talking TV. Thanks very much. Is this unlike anything you've worked on before? Oh, absolutely. It just felt really exciting. It felt like something totally different. And yeah, just a really kind of new, interesting project to be a part of. What came first, the programme or the technology? The technology came first. And then I suppose it was about thinking about where that technology might sit best. It felt like a very natural home for it, considering that these kind of group of students were the first really, I suppose, to to leave home and have grown up with a mobile phone. The stories are there, aren't they? Absolutely. And they have a totally different relationship with their phone than, you know, my generation would have. So it felt kind of a nice territory to be in, to be following them as they yet yeah, leave home, but with their phone in their pocket. So, and explore really how they, how they kind of keep in contact with people back home, how they, you know, start off in this brave new world of adulthood. Tell us about the technology and how it works. So the digital rig basically allows us to get all the phone data from their phones, from our contributors' phones, to help us with the production process. Uh, so what that means in practical terms is we give them specially adapted mobile phones with their consent, obviously. Everything that they do on that phone is fed back into a server, which obviously then we can review, we can look at, and then we can also archive it and use it within the programme. So we can use it to basically help us through the filming process. Yeah, and this is something RAW has developed specifically for these kinds of programmes. Absolutely. I think it's the first It's the first of its kind, we think. So t tell us about how the information comes in and, and what you do with it at, at that point during the, during the shoot. Well, it's not quite live. It's it's near real time. So we have a group of dedicated D-Rig, a D-Rig producer and D-Rig researchers who basically sift through the information, which is an absolutely mammoth job given the say, amount of 200,000 uh, effectively mobile updates. Yeah, they uh, I mean, like to text, they like to tweet. <laughs> We kind of wondered sometimes what else they were doing with their day. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. They seem absolutely wedded to their mobile mm. phones. I mean, throughout the filming, you can see them on their phones. I know. It's it's quite funny because ordinarily you're obviously telling your contributors, oh, would you mind putting your phone away? Would you mind, you know, turning your phone so off? So is it a but bit counterintuitive exactly. in that respect? <laughs> we were, you know, very happy to see them texting. And then we basically would chat about what's happening on the D-Rig. Obviously, they have to work in really close collaboration with the team, the filming team on the ground to try and, I suppose, make the best use of the material that's coming in. And then, yeah, we, we kind of build that into their stories ultimately. And is that a question of doing that in the edit or do you try and be flexible as filming is going on and you're getting this sort of feed of near real real-time information yeah no we absolutely were able to use it on location um especially if there's something really important i mean what was what was really interesting about it was that you know it gives it give you a real insight into very practical things apart from anything else you know you knew who their friends were you knew what they might be kind of thinking about doing and then you'd maybe use that to chat to them about what you would film so that was kind of one element of it. But also it, it kind of really gave us an opportunity to get to know them a lot better than you would ordinarily. 
with a contributor, that was really special, I think, to to kind of really get that insight into how they were feeling and thinking. So, I mean, we're talking a lot about the technology, but how, how does it look on screen? Because it's quite a traditional observational documentary, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It was filmed as any documentary would be filmed. And then superimposed on that are the graphics. Did you have to frame shots with that in mind? Yeah, so we did two things. Firstly, if we were in the middle of a scene and we, you know, our contributors were texting, phoning, we just let them do that and film that setup. On top of that, we had to do special de-rig shots where, again, we'd spend a period of time with them, we'd film them in different in different locations and have frame the shots that it could accommodate a graphic. So you had to do some pickups with them on their mobile phone, is that right? Or Yes, yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. And obviously they were very neutral pickups. We don't want, you know, to turn them into actors, most definitely not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, they're very neutral, kind of, you know, de-rig plates, really. That you could just drop in whenever you That you, you could drop whenever in whenever you, want. you wanted and they could accommodate the graphics so you're never going to frame them in exactly the same way as you'd frame an ordinary GV. They're basically de-rig GVs. And what, what was the biggest lesson you took away and, and would apply if you were using this technology again on, on other shows? Um, that the de-rig is fundamentally another set of rushes. It really is and it has to be treated exactly as another set of rushes so you have your dedicated team you know you think about it you review it in the same way as you do ordinary rushes you go back into it to look for those gems that you might have missed first time round in the same way as you would with ordinary rushes and also in terms of compliance you have to think about it in exactly the same way as well which obviously means that you know you're essentially working with two sets of rushes yeah, so you've <laughs> through got a your dual edit period. going on yeah, but, but it's also kind of trying to integrate those dual edits, but still giving it the attention that it deserves, I suppose, is the best way to think about it. Does that mean that it's, it's a bit more resource intensive, the, the edit? Yes, definitely. You have lined up a second project, or Raw and Channel 4 have lined up a second project in, in teens, haven't you? Yes, which is a very, which is a different project, but yeah. yeah they're, um, but you'll use the same technology. Yes, that's right. But Raw owns the rig, is that right? And Channel 4 has sort of first refusal on, on the shows. Yes, that's yeah. my understanding. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, do you think this technology you, you'll see it grow in the television industry? Do you think we'll see more of these kind of things? It's a brave new world, <laughs> and hopefully, if it's if it you know goes down well with viewers, it would be brilliant to kind of see it being rolled out in in different arenas. It's almost one of those things if it's difficult to go back sometimes, <laughs> so it's going to be difficult to I don't know not watch people's text messages on screen if you're making observational documentaries. You know, it gives you so much insight. It it you know, I don't know. Arguably, it would be difficult for audiences to not. Because I mean, you look at other rig shows like Twenty Four Hours and A and E or something, and it's just sort of become part of the grammar of television now, isn't it? Absolutely, and it's very similar to that. It gives you that insight that you can never get with a traditional um, observational camera crew. That's not to say that we didn't make this project in exactly the same way as we would a traditional observational documentary, but to have that other level to it, it's very exciting, and it really does give the viewer something else. Fantastic. Look, best of luck with the rest of the series. Uh, the Secret Life of Students continues on Channel 4 next Thursday at 10pm. Uh, it's previews time again, and I'm pleased to say that Alex Farber and Stephen D. Wright are back with me on the Talking TV sofa. 
We'll start with BBC One's Nick and Margaret, Too Many Immigrants, where The Apprentice stars examine the impact of immigration on the UK by pairing up sceptics with people who have established new lives on our shores. Here's a clip from the first episode of the Silver River format, with Nick and Margaret chatting to a retired couple in Ilford. We've got fine neighbours. I mean, we all get on well, but it's difficult to hold conversations with them because a lot of them don't speak good English, other than the pleasantries of good morning and how are you? Margaret, what what does being part of a community mean to you? Well, for instance, I wanted to start singing in a a singing group and for this part of Ilford there would be nothing for me. When we came here there was a dance studio, there were billiard halls, I think the billiard hall's gone, the dance school's gone, So in a sense, then, your community has been taken away, strangers in your own land. Well, you've got nowhere to go to meet your your friends and Mm. your neighbours, yeah. Uh, Alex, uh, what do you make of this? I was intrigued and I wanted to like it more than I did. My problem was it all felt a little bit UKIP and I wasn't massively comfortable and I didn't really feel that things got resolved as neatly as I would have liked to see. Other than the young chap, no one really seemed to learn very much, and I found that slightly disappointing. Stephen, agree? Well, no, when it started out, my, my heart sank when they went, oh, and we're going to pair people up, and I was like, oh, here we go, a little kind of fake format twist. But actually, I did become more intrigued by that kind of device as it went on because it did seem a bit more realistic. I mean, as Alex said, it's right, they picked people who were fairly entrenched in their views, and I, and I was getting frustrated waiting to see some realisation or some education by this device of, of, of putting a sort of, you know, racist with a, uh, I'm saying racist in a kind of UKIP way, someone concerned with immigration, <laughs> yeah. let's put it that way, putting uh, somebody who's concerned with immigration with somebody who is an immigrant. It did start to, you know, pay dividends because you, but it, the people took a long time to realise things. I mean, they weren't the cleverest of people. Possibly that's why they're so worried, you know, about the immigration. But um, the slow it, it felt like it was a slow programme. It did warm up. You know, um, but the, the French girl, you know, transforming that guy's life was really, was really worth watching. And the other two, I felt like, well, you know, it felt like the programme had just finished. It, it did feel like it was a, a one show that had been cut in half rather than two shows. And so you are a bit frustrated, but I will watch the next episode because I now want to know what will happen. And there were some, you know, I would think for the general population, there was a lot of stuff being said that isn't said on TV that they would nod along to and then go, oh, hang on, whatever. You know, it didn't feel to me like it was so London-specific that you couldn't identify with if you lived in Manchester or whatever. So I thought it was a good good show. I mean, I thought it, it, they did well. And Nick and Margaret, I mean, I don't really know what their credentials are, but I kind of trust them. You know, they don't seem to be political experts, but they don't seem to be presenters either. So it's got they've got a weird sort of ability to take us through in a sort of hand art. Do you think that's what BBC One sees in them? Obviously, because I, I mean, I watched their one on Old People uh, last year, which was a brilliant show, I thought. So they obviously can do these sort of slightly contentious social issues, sort of state of the nation type pieces, which is good. I mean, they know they work, you know, and it's good to see older people talking on, on, you know, I'm sick of seeing a 30 year old talking about stuff on TV. You know, somebody who's in the 60s can understand. I actually enjoyed the show. I thought it was good. To be honest, though, I couldn't. I couldn't stand those really stilted conversations they were having in the back of the taxi. Yeah, they felt a yeah. bit fake. Like the producer said, now say something kind of, you know, about... So the, Do a neat little wrap-up on that little section mm, we've had. I mean, you know, that <laughs> Nick, you know, did a few... Oh, yes, they've lost their community, you know? And it's like, well, that old couple, they've lost 
the old part of their community. It's not necessarily a racist thing. It's like they don't have a 1950s lifestyle anymore. You know, and, and so there's a, there's a few things that were a bit odd. But those little bits with Nick and Margaret did feel a bit stilted and a bit awkward and a bit fake. But it's, I suppose it's sort of the TV convention and the fact they did them in a cab or walking around the street, you know, sort of at least it's a bit more, you know, <laughs> it fun. Might, it might have been nice to have them going along to some of the meetings when the immigrants and the anti-immigrant people met. Yeah, because they, they, they stayed out of those. They stayed they? out of those. And so sometimes it felt a bit like the people had their views but were unable to perhaps communicate, articulate, yeah. articulate what it was they were feeling and ask the right questions. And I think that perhaps by having them both in the room together and with Nick or Margaret, they may have been able to draw out. See, that would have pushed the budget up, though. You know, more filming days, more money, more cost. It's like, you can see it's a producer's solution. You know, film all the links afterwards once we've got the bits. And, you know, so it did feel a bit like that, was it, you know... One of the things that kept running through my mind as I, was, as I was watching it is, is this really the best vehicle that BBC One can come up with to tackle immigration? It's weird. There, there it, must be more innovative ways of, uh, of Well, that was that was my subject. thought when they said, we're going to pair you with a, an immigrant. That was when I went, oh, God, here we go. But as with the French girl, you know, you find, you, you start to see something else. You start to see real aspects of, of immigrant ambition and hard work and the, the mindset that did come across. So it did work. Uh, you know, you can't do immigration in one show and that's it. You know, there's a hundred ways of doing immigration, you know. So it, to me, it was a good BBC One type of, you know, a safe show for people to watch that isn't too inflammatory, isn't racist, you know, wouldn't upset the Daily Mail, but wouldn't necessarily appease them either. So it was one of those ones that's been done Trot you know, a good line. It's, 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 it's treading a line, and it's, it's hopefully, you know, I mean, you can tell their intent is that the the, the different uh, participants will reflect the different aspects of the of, of the immigration sort of situation. Uh, we'll leave that there for now. Nick and Margaret, Too Many Immigrants, launches on the 16th of July at 9pm on BBC One. Next up, we flick over a couple of channels to BBC Three, which is preparing to launch musical drama Glasgow Girls. The Minna Films programme tells the story of a group of schoolgirls whose petition to save their friend from deportation helped change immigration rules in Scotland. The story originally aired as a documentary on BBC Scotland in 2005 and it inspired a stage musical. Here the girls go door to door to collect signatures for their petition and just a brief warning, uh, it does contain some strong language. Hi sir, I'm here with a petition for the release of my school friend. Petition? What's that about? Is that about a shoot? About the rubbish getting locked up in the shoot? Uh, no sir. They've been putting fucking bikes doing that shoot. That's why it's all overflowing. It's ridiculous. It's not about that sir, it's about my friend Agnesa. Her and her family, they were taken kidnapped. Kidnapped? But no. No, I can't, I can't help you with that. Look, look, phone the police doll. If your pals have been fucking kidnapped, you better phone the police. The eagle-eared among you will have noticed that there's a bit of a theme in terms of immigration here uh, in our preview section. But what did you make of what did you make of the episode? Well, I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I, I hadn't heard of the Glasgow Girl thing, so initially I was a it was bit fresh to you. Pun? It was fresh to you. This oh morning. yeah, I mean it, it was something that did. You know, I, I was genuinely sort of moved, particularly by the the last five minutes where they showed the real Glasgow girls. Because I, I felt a bit stupid then, because I thought, oh, God, these people have actually taken it on. Um, I was a bit confused by the sort of musical format, because there was bits of actual musical kind of performance, and then there was lots of not musical performance. 
and so that that slightly threw me, and I felt like we could have done with a few more musical performances, maybe two or three. But the the story was good. I thought the acting was good, and it felt quite fresh. and And that did feel like a new way of doing immigration. It you did. know, it did. You know, compared to Nick and Margaret, this was a completely new way of doing it. So no, it was it was an interesting show. I mean, it genuinely surprised me. You know, I've seen the trails already; they look good. I wanted to know a bit more. That was the thing. To me, it felt like a, a little bit shallow. It didn't go too deep into it. But I don't know whether it's because people already know the story and they didn't want to do more of that. Or I I felt like we could have had more, more stuff, more drama, more story. Uh, And it felt a little bit surface, but a good show. Alex, what was your take? I thought the casting was really good. I thought the young Somalian girl was excellent. And yeah, and I did think it did feel to be uh, everything happened a little bit quickly. I was almost expecting it to be a series and not a one off. But then, you know, it was a nice, neatly told story. I didn't know anything about it either. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I agree with Stephen on the music in that there was quite a lot of segments that included music played over the top as, as as music, but there was no singing. And then at the end, the climax, there was a song that the cast did. And I would have liked to have seen them include more singing from the cast mm. because it was billed as a musical drama from my understanding. But it, it, is, it didn't yeah, really... Yeah, that's, how it's, that's how it's billed in, in, the, in the promotion material. But it didn't really feel like a musical drama. It felt like a drama that had quite a lot of music in it. I think it was three singing performances. Was there three? I think, I think three. I can only remember three um, out of an hour. But, but I really, that to me is a blessed relief because I can't stand musical drama and that light touch with the worked, Jake. I felt. <laughs> you, but you wanted more. I wanted more. I wanted, you know, I, to me, musicals should be a bit more out and proud and go for it. And it was, and, but this know, isn't jazz hands, is it? <laughs> no, absolutely not. But then you don't, you know, musicals don't have to be about jazz hands. But it's, but to me, you know, it felt like a sort of a little bit like an episode of Glee. You know what I mean? But uh, not, not very gleeful. Urban I mean, Glee. But it could have had a few more songs because they could sing. The music did have an emotional impact. The story had an emotional impact. You know, that's what musicals uh, are all about. But no, you know, it was good. It was good. It was, it, it, I mean, I could have gone with a bit longer, actually. You know what I mean? The, the felt like... It you, could have Alex been 90 is, minutes. Alex was right. It did feel a bit quick. You know I mean? That's why I'm saying it felt a bit, possibly a bit shallow. It felt like they'd compressed it a bit. Uh, last time we were on the show, we watched Murdered by My Boyfriend, which you didn't oh, like, Stephen. Yeah. This this compares favourably, do you think? Yeah, I mean, well, it, definitely much, much more entertaining. This was an entertaining show although an, a very gritty subject, uh, and compared to Murdered by My Boyfriend, which to me was just too bleak and, and, and basically unwatchable, uh, this one, I actually, you know, I, I, I watched, I watched all the way through, I enjoyed it, I felt, you know, I, you know and, I would t- and I'll tell people to watch it, I will recommend it. I mean, you can obviously see that BBC Three has gone for kind of quite gritty subjects in a sort of, let's see how, how these affect the youth, uh, the younger people, etc., so, you know, you can see the kind of strategy behind this and um, and it's good they're doing it because no one else would touch this kind of stuff in a million years. OK, Glasgow Girls airs on the 15th of July at 9pm. Uh, I'm afraid we've run out of time this episode. Thanks to Alex and Stephen for their sterling efforts. And thanks also to Joanne Timoney for her insight on Channel 4's The Secret Life of Students. Hope you enjoyed the show. If so, why not join in the debate at broadcastnow.co.uk before we return in a couple of weeks. Until then... I'm I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was Matt Hill. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 